Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that has 99 gifted friends in this borough alone. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we're working our way through the good, the bad, and the bonkers of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Jessica Jones Season 1, Episodes 3 and 4. Okay, Lonnie, today's four-color fact, singular. (laughs) It's really a series of facts, but it's all about the same person. Mm -hmm. So singular four-color fact is really a treat for me personally. Yeah. Because at long last, I get to talk about my legit favorite superhero in all the world. Yes. Now, look, I know this is going to come as a shock to people because they know I like Batman a lot, (laughs) but he's not my favorite. Uh Uh-huh. My honest to living tribunal favorite is Patsy Walker, a.k.a. Hellcat. <laughs> I'm fascinated by this because you've mentioned this a number of times and I've, I know the Hellcat's your favorite, you know, um, but she's I mean, like I never I don't think I ever heard of her until you mentioned her and like oh no i would not expect you to have yeah i hadn't realized that she was trish like at the time the first time i I ran through and watched jessica jones didn't realize there was that connection that she had been like also a superhero or whatever um so i am fascinated by this whole thing i've been waiting for you to talk about hellcat this whole time i'm very excited you should be because there are some bits about hellcat that i think you are going to particularly appreciate oh, like good. just knowing you as an audience mm-hmm. you're gonna like this biz <laughs> All right. to lay the track a little bit to connect to jessica jones trish walker is an extremely dour version of the superheroic light of my life <laughs> who actually goes by the name Patsy. Mm-hmm. Patsy Walker. Now, it's kind of weird to say that Trish is dour because it isn't like Patsy's life has been all sunshine and rainbows. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of it is really dark, like literally hellishly dark. Mm-hmm. But I think it's Patsy's reaction to her life that makes the whole thing feel less bleak. And oh, will we get to that? But just this is and let me just preface to you and the a-holes. This is the only four color fact that we're doing. It's probably as long as any of my other four color fact sections. (laughs) I got a lot of Patsy feelings. We're going narrow and deep on this one. Yeah. So I love Patsy for lots of reasons. But the first one is that she is a metatextual artifact. Ooh. What I mean by this is, the first appearance of Patsy Walker was in Miss America Comics number 2 in 1944. Published by Timely Comics decades before there would be a Marvel Comics. Wow. Her stories were about Patsy and her parents and her boyfriend, Robert Buzz Baxter, (laughs) and her frenemy, Hetty Wolf. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of teen romance title that was made popular by, like, Archie Comics. Okay. So popular, in fact, that Patsy continued to be a feature in Miss America, Mm -hmm. also in Teen Comics, also in Teen Girl's Life, and even in her own spinoff title, a titular Patsy Walker, Mm -hmm. which resulted in more (laughs) spinoffs, Patsy and Hetty, Patsy and her pals, and a single issue story called A Date with Patsy. Okay, so these were not superhero. These were like teen, you know, like Archie comic teen type stuff. rom-coms. Yeah. Okay. Yes. How interesting. Now, uh, believe me, 
we will get to the superhero stuff, but man, <laughs> I just I just want to prep you. I think you're going to love it. I think the listeners are going to love it, but it is a bit of a ride. Okay. So just strap in. <laughs> right. Now, with all of those titles, if it sounds like Patsy was popular, then you are correct. <laughs> Patsy, along with Kid Colt Outlaw and Millie the Model, are the only characters that Timely published continuously throughout the Golden Age of Comics, into the Silver, and finally into the Marvel Age. Wow. For reference, you have probably heard me say that only three superhero characters ever remained in continuous publication throughout the post-war, McCarthyism, and the space race eras. Mm -hmm. Their names are Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. So they're the only superhero characters that stayed in continuous publication from the Golden Age on. At Timely, which would be Marvel, there were three non-superhero characters that did that, and Patsy and her crew were one set. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that should give you some kind of idea of the one-time selling power of Patsy and her friends. (laughs) Wow. The Patsy Walker title was adapted into a young career girl book after her (laughs) high school graduation and lasted to its 124th issue in 1965. Wow. The Patsy and Hetty comic outlasted it in time. It went to 110 issues that ended in 1967. Mm-hmm. Now, those dates might also sound a little familiar. That's because these are past the point that Timely had become Marvel. Mm-hmm. In fact, Patsy Walker and Journey into Mystery, the home of Thor for much of his publishing life, were the only two pre-modern comics to last long enough to be labeled Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. So they had Marvel Comics, like an MC trademark kind of thing, on the cover. Everything else from the Timely era did not get that. It didn't last. Wow. So right now you're probably thinking, that's fine and all, but none of it's a superhero story. (laughs) So buckle up, because this is where shit gets amazing. (laughs) Patsy and Hetty made a cameo in the Fantastic Four Annual number 3, 1965, thus establishing that they existed within the Marvel superhero universe. Oh, great. Incidentally, decades later, in Defenders number 89 in 1980, it would be established that Patsy's line of comics were actual comic books that existed in the Marvel universe. Oh, my God. It turns out that Patsy's mom wrote these comics based on the life of her daughter and her daughter's friends. Oh, my God. The strain this creates between Patsy and her mother, not to mention Hetty and boyfriend-turned-husband-turned-ex-husband Buzz, became part of her (laughs) ongoing (laughs) storyline. Oh, my God. I kind of like that. That is cool. It's so good. Yeah. Okay, but she's still not a superhero, right? Mm -hmm. I'm getting there. Okay. Patsy became a supporting character for Hank McCoy, who Mm -hmm. you may know from the X-Men movies, as the Beast. Mm -hmm. At the time, the Beast was on sabbatical from the X-Men, and he was working for the Brandt Corporation, which you definitely have heard of thanks to Agents of Mm S.H.I.E.L.D. And this was going on in Amazing Adventures in 1972. So she becomes a supporting character, like a lab assistant and friend to Hank McCoy. Mm -hmm. She finds out his secret identity as the Beast, and they become friends, and she says she'll keep the secret as long as he helps her become a superhero. Wow. Unfortunately, the Beast story was abandoned fairly quickly in 
Amazing Adventures. So we don't pick Patsy's story back up until Avengers 114, Mm -hmm. where she accompanies the Avengers on several missions before taking up the abandoned costume of the cat (laughs) and dubbing herself Hellcat. I love it. She then spent some time on Titan, which has come up once or twice uh-huh. in our chats, with Moondragon, mm-hmm. who you may recall as the daughter of Drax the Destroyer when he was an Earth guy. Yes. And also the mm-hmm. person responsible for Angar the Screamer. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So Moondragon enhances Patsy's psionic abilities and trains her extensively in Titanian martial arts. Awesome. Okay, so all that's incredibly amazing, right? Yeah. Teen rom-com character that is so popular, she outlasts most superheroes <laughs> until there's another superhero boom where creators remembered her so fondly that they integrated her into the new universe and not just as someone's romantic interest, but with the desire and the will to become a full-fledged superhero. And <sighs> now is when it gets really interesting. <laughs> wow. While operating with the Defenders, Patsy met the occult adventurer, Damon Hellstrom, the son of Satan. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I'm just going to pause here for a minute because I realize I have just gone kind of fast. And I want you to, I'm just going to pause here and have you ask, you have any questions? Is, like concerns? Are you okay? <laughs> well, I mean, how, how Satan made made an appearance feels a little weird but then again like this is comic book world and you know shit gets weird it just feels it's like... not that weird i could name half a dozen satanish figures in the 616 off the top of my head well i mean you know satan like referencing but to be like literally the son of the actual satan you know, feels a little feels like a weird paul because I can name so many Satan-like figures in the 616, that's actually kind of fraught for mm-hmm. Damon. But for our purposes here, just accept that Damon is half human and half infernal and is, in fact, the literal son of Satan. Okay. Okay. Which gives him access to a variety of occult, mystical, and demonic powers. Uh-huh. He's also super dreamy, and he and Patsy fell in love and were married. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering what happened to Patsy's first husband, Buzz, I'll come back to it. It's not nearly as important as Damon. He's great. (laughs) Now, along the way, Damon had his dark soul removed, which is like a capital D in all one word. Uh And this made him fully human, but it also left him wasting away slowly. He was dying. Wow. And after many failed attempts at stabilizing him, in desperation, Patsy summons Satan and (laughs) begs him to fix Damon. Wow. She loved him a lot, is what I'm saying. Yeah, I guess so. Now, Satan did so, restoring Damon's dark soul, but at the cost of Hellstrom returning to Satan's service as his son. Okay, here's my question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised I've made it this far, but okay. (laughs) All right, so he's the son of Satan. Yes. So is he, like, but he's a bad guy, though. Right. Sometimes. I mean, okay. So, but she's in love with him, but he's evil. I mean, is he evil? Most of the time, Damon is resisting his father's influence and is actually using all of his demonic powers and mystical abilities to fight evil. Most of the time. And when he's not doing that, is she like mad at him? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, he she's actually a big part. She's not the only part, but mm-hmm. she is actually a big part of why he tried to go straight so hard and for so long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they met on the Defenders and he was already, you know, trying to kind of harness this evil power for good. So he was trying to be good when they met. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so they... He keeps on that way. He actually, for for contrast, Damon's like trying really hard to be human and fight the good fight, even with these evil powers mm-hmm. that he has. He has a sister named Satana who is the opposite. <laughs> like she just goes hardcore uh, uh, in the service of Satan uh, doing bad things. Oh my god. I know. It's just a it's such a joy. I'm not even I'm uh, not even to the best stuff yet. All okay. right. <laughs> So, as I said, Satan does fix Damon by returning his dark soul, mm-hmm. but at the cost of all of this do-gooding. Like, right. that's not going to happen anymore. Okay. And during this moment that, that the dark soul comes back on Damon, Patsy sees his true demonic face, and it drives her insane. Wow. She languishes in a near-vegetative state until her literal aching despair calls to a weird entity called the Death Urge. <laughs> Just except that that exists. You do not want me to run down that rabbit trail right now. (laughs) At her request, the death urge frees her spirit. Okay, so is that that killing her or? Well, this has alternately been characterized as a mercy killing and sometimes as suicide on Mm -hmm. Patsy's part, depending on who's telling the story and frankly, what Patsy's frame of mind is when she's the one telling it. Okay. Yeah, this is... We're going to get to a place where I think you love Patsy, too, because of the way she just, like, deals with this trauma and kind of, like, integrates it and stuff. We'll get to it. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's part of the thing is, like, what was that moment depends very much on one's point of view. Yeah. Okay. Now, once she dies, Patsy goes to hell. (laughs) Why does she go to hell? I thought she was a good person. Well, I listen, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, But, but, you know, you've actually heard me talk about this before because... (laughs) This was part of Mockingbird's resurrection. Uh-huh. You may recall there was a revenge plot by an also-ran Avengers villain called the Grim Reaper. Mm-hmm. And he brings several heroes, dead heroes, back from hell and infected them with his hatred for the Avengers so that they would fight his battles for him because Grim Reaper sucks. <laughs> well, I just don't understand why the good superheroes are in hell. Okay. I mean, I... There are some answers to this okay. that are, that are, they are a little touchy. They're a little more than I think I should go into here because I think they're kind of, they're kind of bad, like for the real world. Like okay. they're not things that I would want to be endorsed for the real world. So okay. just, just maybe go with the fact that she'd been the kind of person who was willing to summon Satan and maybe Satan didn't want to be summoned. Okay. You know, and she was also a person who was like, I know he's half demon, but mama, I love him. But mama, I love him. Yes, which uh, Kelly Jones and I have trademarked. (laughs) Yes. I mean, Damon Hellstrom, as far as but mama, I loved him, makes Angel look 100% like the guy you would take home, introduce to your mother, and she would go, thank God you have found this man. For everybody listening, Angel's a reference to Angel the TV series, which I cover in in the podcast Still Dead, which I do with Dr. Kelly Jones, just to keep people up to date. In case there's anybody out there has no idea what angel we're talking about. <laughs> yes, thank you for, but I mean, really, mm-hmm. Damon. Damon is one of those a number one. But Mama, I love him. Okay, moments. I get so it. So I get it. There's some there's some other stuff that could go on that mm-hmm. like does that takes a the dimmest possible look at sort of Catholic theology, and I just I think it's bad, mm-hmm. and I don't 
I don't love it. Okay. What I do love about her being in hell and along with Mockingbird is that they are fighting kind of like an eternal war uh -huh. down there, mm -hmm. trying to keep their identities you know, held together themselves with the good fight. Right. It, even though it's hopeless, mm -hmm. you know. And in the middle of that, this asshat Grim Reaper comes in and brings them back to Earth and makes them hate their friends. And they go to fight their friends. And with the help of the Scarlet Witch, they shake off the effects mm -hmm. of the Grim Reaper. And then they are recalled to hell because they're not really alive. Yeah. Now, thanks to a last minute warning from Mockingbird. This is the part you've heard before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hawkeye attempts to thwart a plan by the now villainous, kinda, Damon Hellstrom. Hawkeye goes to hell to get Mockingbird, but Damon tricked him into bringing Patsy back instead. Aha. Uh -huh. Damon still loves her. Mm-hmm. Upon her return to the living, Patsy wrote and published an autobiography in an attempt to make some sense of her life and deal with her feelings of depression and failure from her time in hell. Wait, so that's how you do it? Why didn't she just see a therapist? Oh, well, as I go on, you're like the picture of Patsy that you should be getting is that everything is done very large and very I loud. Guess so. I guess so. Yeah. All right. In the process of coming back from the dead, she also discovers that her frenemy, Hetty Wolf, had, while she was deceased, taken over the corporation that was built on the comic books Patsy's mother had written. Oh, my God. And Hetty turned their hometown into a tourist attraction. <laughs> Needless to say, Patsy and Hetty don't get along. Oh, so sad. Now, well, they never really did. It was complicated. <laughs> This is also when Patsy discovers that the town was infiltrated by demonic forces mm -hmm. led by Nicholas Scratch, son of the witch Agatha Harkness. Okay, those are great names. You remember names. her? <laughs> yes, those are great you, names. You, you loved the, her name, and so I told you a little bit about her. Yes, anyway, yes, she's yes. a mm -hmm. very powerful witch. She has a son named Nicholas Scratch because of course she does. Of course she does. And he starts a vaguely satanic cult called the Sons of the Serpent. Mm -hmm. And they were using Centerville, Patsy's hometown, yes. as their kind of base of operations. Patsy wow. uncovers this plot, defeats Scratch and his passel of weirdos, mm -hmm. and got no real thanks from Hetty because this is the kind of life Patsy lives now. <laughs> sure. <laughs> now, there's some other stuff that went on there that's just Patsy, like, you know, coming to grips with who she is and where she's at and, mm -hmm. and she had adventures and they're good. Mm -hmm. But I want to jump ahead a little bit to the civil war that happened between right. superheroes with mm -hmm. uh, Iron Man and his crew of idiots that followed Iron Man <laughs> on one side and Captain America and his crew of good people that knew what was up on the other side. <laughs> it's a bad story. It's a terrible story. And you're going to hear more about it when we get to Captain America yes. Civil War. Mm -hmm. The one good thing, as far as I'm concerned, that came out of it is that Tony Stark won that war. <laughs> for dumb, dumb reasons. You guys, just you wait. Anyway, after he wins, he starts the 50-state initiative, which ensures that every state in the United States gets a government-mandated superhero. Aww. Like they all have their own flower and their own bird. Now they exactly. get their own superhero. They could put it on a quarter. Yes, Sorry, I'm, why I'm, not? I'm imagining all of the marketing potentials with that kind of thing. Yeah, Totally. <laughs> Now, he calls in a favor from Hellcat mm -hmm. and sticks her with Alaska because nobody else wanted Alaska. Hey, Alaska. 
Alaska's awesome. All right. I, I I thought that was also kind of shitty, but honestly, just you know, just just go with it. That uh, the kind of superheroes that are left working for Tony Stark after the Civil War mm-hmm. are the kind of self-interested assholes that would be like Hawaii, right? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just. That's my that's my kind of headcanon. All that. right, all right. Now, while in Alaska, she had a fantastic and weird-ass mystical adventure that literally nobody but someone with her mix of mystical powers, can-do attitude, and ability to punch problems could solve. (laughs) I had always liked Hellcat, but that series is when I learned to love her. Awesome. I don't want to say anything else because I would really highly recommend that series. I will put a link to it on Amazon in the show notes. Mm Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I really just recommend, I know I say a lot that you should read these stories, but I, I really feel like you would find some affinity for Patsy. Yeah, I think I might. Now, from there, her next big appearance is in She-Hulk's mm-hmm. new book. She has been Jennifer Walters' private investigator. Now, Jennifer Walters is the She-Hulk. She's mm-hmm. also a practicing licensed attorney. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I want that TV show. Disney Plus. Yes. No other show you want to make is worth make it. That just happen. give me just give me basically 2019's Allie McBeal, but it's She-Hulk. Just yes. give it to me. Now Jen and Patsy run into one another. They get drunk and commiserate about their lives. Mm-hmm. And then they decide to go out and fight crime together, even though they're a little tipsy. <laughs> and despite oh, that going They were gonna fight ex- crime that night while they were drunk. Yeah, you're damn right they are. (laughs) I love this already. I know. (laughs) It goes spectacularly poorly, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, they continue to work together. Mm -hmm. She becomes her private investigator. She works for the firm. Patsy is amazing in the job. She is like the get shit done side like in the field you know yeah jen's in the courtroom getting shit done and they're like how are you gonna find out that information and she's like i've got ways her ways are patsy i love it so good so uh-huh. good now after that hellcat gets her own book like she they she breaks away uh-huh. um she's no longer the investigator she gets her own book she's once again kind of out on her ass with no job and no prospects this happens to her a lot yeah and she just always picks herself up and figures something out mm-hmm. you know now those books are all great and they involve another very heated and even bigger feud with hetty and a bunch <laughs> of other things and you should totes read them okay. <laughs> now that brings you up to speed mm-hmm so what is it in this wild melange that makes Patsy my favorite? Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of stuff, honestly. Some <laughs> of it is that she's a literal trouble magnet with mystic senses. So yeah. no matter where she goes, weird shit happens and she can sniff it out. Mm-hmm. Some of it is that after her trip to hell, she can mystically summon her costume from nowhere. And that's got a real Sailor Moon transformation sequence feel to it. And by the way, friends, I love Sailor Moon a lot. <laughs> A big chunk is that this metatextual nature of the character. You know I love that stuff. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Like she's been around forever, and she's both in our world and in the fiction, and it's fantastic. No, I love that. I think that's so cool. But the biggest thing I love is that she's a superhero groupie turned into an actual superhero through her ability to befriend people mm-hmm. and her willpower to make her dreams come true. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, remember, she was in a place to get a costume and become Hellcat because she had already been adventuring with the Avengers as plain old Patsy Walker. <laughs> Now, part of that is also she's had a really weird and incredibly difficult life. She has had these two failed marriages. The first was with Buzz, and it broke up with Buzz because he couldn't handle how awesome she was and then couldn't get over the fact that she didn't need him. Oh, my God. He's Riley from Buffy. (laughs) Oh, oh. Uh, yes, because side note, Buzz allowed Roxanne to make him into a supervillain, mostly so that he could go fuck up Patsy's wedding to Damon. Yes. Uh, he is the worst. He is so defined by his relationship with Patsy that his supervillain like motif mm-hmm. and name is Mad Dog. Ugh. Versus, you know, the He can't Hellcat. even get his own identity. No, no. I mean, it's just, you know, yin and yang. He's just like, I will be her opposite. I don't even think he that thought that hard about it. Buzz sucks. Buzz you know, he just does suck. I haven't even read worst. anything with him and I already hate him. Yeah, no, <laughs> that that is the correct response. Okay. And then her second marriage fails because Uh as much as Damon and Patsy loved one another, that love wasn't stronger than Damon's fucked up family baggage. And friends, that is a life lesson right there. (laughs) If he's literally the son of Satan, it's probably not going to end well. Well, uh, clearly I don't disagree. I mean, you know, the the proof's in the pudding right here. But, But despite knowing that and despite the baggage being that significant she nearly got herself killed helping him to survive Mm -hmm. you know and she never held that against him and when she died and went to hell she kind of kicked hell's ass until she got to come back (laughs) and even though she was dealing with depression from all that she Mm -hmm. never gave up in fact she resolved to return to the kind of happy adventurous unstoppably loving person that she was before all that happened to her wow And for me, that's like an antidote to the usual toxic masculinity shit that we'd get from a male hero with her backstory. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, if if half of that shit had happened to a guy, we'd just get another fucking Punisher. (laughs) But when it happens to Patsy, she integrates her trauma, she makes it part of who she is, she deals with the depression when it comes on, but she doesn't let any of her tragic backstory define or limit her. Mm Mm-hmm. She's beautiful and she's funny, but she's also still incredibly awkward. (laughs) She's got just enough self-delusion to never doubt she should be a superhero, but is also pretty honest with herself about all the turmoil she's got bubbling below the surface, Mm -hmm. right? She's got darkness, but she's optimistic and she's empathetic. And she was before the darkness, but uses the darkness to fuel those better parts of her. Wow. Everyone in fiction and outside of it loves Patsy, and they have since 1947. Oh, my God. She's a role model for emotional health and for friendship and for heroism, and not all heroes wear capes, but this one wears a yellow and blue cat suit, and I love her. Oh, my God. I'm in love with her now, just hearing you talk about her. I want to read these stories. That's fantastic. Yes, she's really great. I mean, I just... You know, she's just she's just so funny and also so smart, but mm-hmm. not afraid to also solve problems by punching it when shit just needs punching. Yeah. And it's yeah. Yeah. And and you do really get to see, especially recently, you, you get a much more sort of nuanced approach. Like mm-hmm. like all of this stuff I said to you is there, but we yeah. weren't always writing comics in the 70s like we are now. And, right. And mm-hmm. the fact that you really get She-Hulk recently 
quit from her high-priced legal job Mm -hmm. running into Patsy, who's also at odd ends, and they get drunk and then fight crime and then are like, fuck it, we're going into business. I love it. I I know. I just, it's beautiful. Like, just, I just, yeah, Hellcat, man. Well, I think that's really great. And it's so funny because, um, you know, I mean, clearly, like, the character of Trish from Jessica Jones, based on... You know, Patsy Walker. Uh, we even have a little bit of It's Patsy from her um, from her, you know, child star days. Right. We have right. A bit of like that it becomes kind of a episode. Disney tween show or yeah. something instead of uh, comic books. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's so funny because, it, you know, when you talked about like how much you love Hellcat and how much you love Patsy Walker. And then here we have this character of Trish, which actually, I mean, I like, you know, I like Trish a lot. Yeah, I like her. Well, okay, this is a little bit... I like her in season one of Jessica Jones. That is Um, also accurate, yes. We'll we'll have that conversation (laughs) as we move forward. Um, But it's really... It's kind of interesting, like, who her character is and where she comes from, you know, with regard to that comic book history. And I think... I feel like they have lightly... You know, um, um, the, the, the character of Trish was lightly inspired by Patsy. We have like the same name and kind of some of that stuff. And her mother's like obsessiveness with her, you know, career. We get a little bit of that in these episodes. Um, so it's really interesting. It's funny to kind of like see that connection there. But um, but I'm definitely into the uh, the Hellcat from the comic books. I'm going to want to read those. So put those links in the show notes when this uh, episode goes up. And in the meantime, we're going to talk about AKA. It's called Whiskey, the third episode episode of Jessica Jones season one. In AKA It's Called Whiskey, we pick up where we left off with Jessica and Luke and they have sex up against the wall. And I know she's tiny and he's incredibly strong, but I don't know, whatever. Unbreakable Luke and totally broken Jessica go out to eat and flirt and they go back to his place for more sex, but Jessica books it when she sees the picture in his medicine cabinet. She focuses then on Hope going to Jerry and then to Trish to get them to help her. As she tells Trish about her plan to get hospital-grade anesthesia to knock out Kilgrave's powers, she sees Trish's bruises and Trish tells her she's been training so she won't need Jessica to protect her. Jessica goes to visit Jerry's doctor wife, Wendy, and asks to be hooked up with Sefentanil and offers to help her with the divorce. Wendy refuses. Frustrated, Jessica goes to see Luke and they have sex again, and she talks to him obliquely about Kilgrave and mind control. He doesn't buy it. Jerry agrees to let Trish interview Hope on her radio show, and after Hope tells the story of mind control, Jerry paints her as insane. Yeah, Jerry's kind of a bitch, you guys. Trish talks about what an asshole Kilgrave is while on the air, and he calls in talking about how someone with mind-controlling abilities might just make her kill herself. Jessica's neighbor Malcolm comes home way too high to function, and Jessica uses him as an excuse to get into the hospital. She throws him on a nurse and claims he attacked her, and in the ensuing chaos, she breaks in and steals the anesthesia she needs. A cop shows up at Trisha's apartment to talk about a guy she hit in the lobby of her office building. When she lets the cop in, he attacks her and she fights back, and her Krav Maga training appears to be paying off. He strangles her, but Jessica comes in and knocks him across the room. The cop says he has to kill her, that Kilgrave is waiting for him. Jessica doses Trish up with this very dangerous hospital-grade anesthesia because, you know, Jessica's great at life choices, (laughs) so that it appears Trish is dead, and the guy leaves. Jessica rushes him in the hallway and puts Trish's phone in his pocket. He pulls his gun on Jessica, saying that he doesn't want to shoot her. Kilgrave says it's not her time. Jessica leaves Trish there. She'll be fine. You don't need an anesthesiologist to make sure anesthesia doesn't, you know, kill someone. 
and chases after the cop, listening to him via the phone in his pocket. The cop goes to Kilgrave's apartment, and she listens as he reports that Trish is dead. Kilgrave tells the cop to jump off the balcony. Jessica rushes in to save the cop, pulling him back from jumping. As she does, Kilgrave sees her through the window, and she flashes back to him, ordering her to use her power to hit a woman in the chest, throwing her into the street. It's Luke's wife. In Jessica's flashback, we see that this is the first time she's able to resist his control. She goes to the woman to check on her, and when Kilgrave commands her to come back to him, that's when the bus hits both him and Luke's wife. In the now, the cop wakes up and tries to jump off the balcony again, but Jessica knocks him out. When she looks back through the windows into the apartment, Kilgrave is gone. She goes in after him and is attacked by a teenager with a baseball bat. She knocks him out too and continues looking for Kilgrave. More people attack and she knocks them out one by one. She hears a printer whirring and pulls a syringe of the anesthesia out of her pocket, carefully moving through the house toward the sound. She goes into the room with the printer and walls are covered with pictures of her as the printer prints out more. On one of the pictures, she finds a scrawled note that reads, see you later. She jumps off the roof with the cop, landing them both in the garbage bags to break the fall and then asks the cop if he took pictures of her. He says no, then freaks out a bit that he killed Trish. Jessica says no one died and tells him to go home. She goes to Luke's and tells him that she can't ever come back without telling him why. AKA It's Called Whiskey was written by Liz Friedman and Scott Reynolds and directed by David Petrarca. All right, so Joshua, here we are uh, with this episode, AKA It's Called Whiskey. Um, and I actually kind of like this episode. I thought it was pretty good. What'd you think? I agree. But in fact, this batch of two continues to be really, really good. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't like 99 Friends as much, but we'll get to that when we get there. Well, <laughs> 99 Friends is, okay, yes, we'll just put a pin in it. Because we'll just put a pin in that. I, I get you. I mm -hmm. already I already get it. Um, and, and boy, will I have some opinions about the abortive attempts to kind of pretend that these shows are in the MCU. But yeah. <laughs> that's that's a whole thing. So, but Absolutely. If you, if you kind of take them... You know, on their own merits, I like both of these, but especially this one. This one really moves the plot forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it does. In a really like scary and believable way. But we also have a lot of like really good character moments too. Like just yeah. quiet, chill times. Yeah. No, there's a lot of really good stuff. I mean, we have this um we have this stuff with Luke and Jessica. You know, which is actually pretty nice, you know, and they've got kind of like a nice little relationship sort of moving through here. Um, it's complicated, you know, as we discover, you know, what Jessica's problem is with his mm -hmm. wife and why she was watching him and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's definitely complicated, but I mean, I, I like them. I like them together. You know, we open up with her right after he, you know, uses the saw, the electric saw on himself and the saw yeah. breaks, but he doesn't. Um, and they have that conversation. There is the sex up against the wall, which is just like the most ridiculous thing. I don't know. Whenever I see people have sex up against the wall or like in a bathroom, I'm like, you know what? That shit's not comfortable. Find a bed. There's something nearby. Like, you know, but I understand it's it's nice for the filming. <laughs> I like that we have a super strong person and an unbreakable man and that you're like sex against a wall is a right. bridge too far. I'm just saying. But um, then they go out, though, and we have this one line, and it makes me crazy. I hate when we do this, and we do this a lot. Um, they go out, and of course, she's eating, you know, like a normal person. And he goes, it's nice to go out with a girl who likes to eat. And 
the thing that drives me crazy about that is that there is nothing that Hollywood loves more than taking a woman who is 95 pounds dripping wet and then putting five burgers and a pizza in front of her and saying, yeah, no, she's going to eat all that. And like, it's supposed to be so adorable that this like super skinny woman can eat like that. And what it does is it makes an impossible beauty standard even harder for regular women to kind of look at and deal with. Like there are women who are thin and who can pack it away and no matter what they eat, they don't gain anything. And that's great but putting that up as this kind of ideal not only are you supposed to be stick thin but you're also supposed to eat you know eight thousand calories a day while you do it in order to be cute and it just it drives me crazy every time they hit that trope we did it with um an, an angel the television series we we're talking about earlier we did that with the character of fred we did that with the gilmore girls it happens all the time all over the place makes me insane so i just had to call that out because this shit causes eating disorders. Anyway, aside oh, from no, that, it's 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 got a character in if if not a story thing, it's also got like a character question for me too. Mm -hmm. Because you know, we talked about how many women are involved in the creation of this show mm -hmm. and how I think that kind of redeemed what had been a good story but but made worse by a purely male perspective in mm -hmm. the comic books, mm -hmm. you know? And as a little bit of a spoiler or a look ahead, like Luke's not a perfect person, but mm -hmm. he remains a really good guy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like just, again, not perfect, but just like a solid guy. Mm -hmm. And this is a weird character choice for him. Like, I I'm not saying he has to be, you know, the most sensitive person when it comes to that kind of thing. But mm -hmm. This is not a real human being talking. We didn't set up a videotape and record real people. These were writing choices. These were and writing choices. It just yes. seems like a weird one. It doesn't fit. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 one of these things that like has just become a trope that that uh, TV and movies they just love it, you know, because they're they want to hide the fact that most women, in order to maintain that kind of body, you know, have to starve themselves. But they feel guilty when they go out and take these women out to eat and they're eating like, you know, a salad with a couple of pine nuts on it, you know. Um, <laughs> so they like to have this thing where they're like, oh, we're going to pretend that this woman can eat whatever she wants, you know, which most women, some women can. And that's great. And the thing is, I hate this thing like real women. Skinny women are also real skinny women also exist and yeah. that's fine and like there's no judgment on that it's just the idea that like not only do you have to be stick thin but you have to be able to put away 12 pizzas while being stick thin and it is so incredibly impossible and so when you see that it's it's the raindrop rainstorm thing right a single raindrop yeah. isn't a problem right you see it once, it's cute, whatever. Um, it's when it happens all the time, it becomes a rainstorm. And then that's when you get drenched and it becomes a problem. So, I mean, this is like one of those things that like in this individual instance in and of itself, whatever, it's fine. You know, she's a superhero. She has superpowers. Obviously, her muscles are working overtime. She can eat a ton. I'm sure her metabolism is like through the roof fine, you know. But it's like when you see that repeated over and over and over and over, again the messages that that sends to women um, are hugely hugely destructive and so whenever I see it it puts me into like I don't know what you would call like a blind fury 
I think maybe <laughs> a white yeah. hot theory yeah. it puts me in. Um, so, so it's just one of those things that just bugs me. But uh, bottom line is overall, I really think that this relationship is well done and well handled. Um, I like Luke, you know, um, Jessica's yeah. a mess, you know, he's very cool and he's very, you know, he's good about it. Like when she ends it at the end of the episode, he's not happy about it, but he accepts it. And he just walks away and gives her space. You know, he doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't try to make her feel guilty. He's not like, oh, come on in, baby. Let's talk about it. Like, none of that stuff. He respects the fact that she made a decision. And he goes away and shuts the door. And I think that that's really, like, I like all this stuff about him. Yeah. I like that he's sort of excited by the Mm -hmm. idea that he found somebody else he can share this very secret part of himself with, you know, and not Uh just share like a secret, but like we have it in common, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And we even see them in the beginning up against the, uh, the wall that should not be, um, like doing a little bit of strength play, you Mm -hmm. know, like finding out who's stronger, like they're into it and that's very cool. And then he remains a good guy. And like the conversation is good about, Mm -hmm. I don't want to like, you can even see, and, and to be honest, this is this was a weird choice. I'm not going to go way deep into this because Luke, Luke has his own show. You right. Know? Mm-hmm. But this conversation was actually a very weird place for me watching it first when I was like, but that's Luke Cage. Yeah. Like the fact that he doesn't want to not just be a hero per se, but like he's not worried about doing the right thing. Right. Was Was a weird beat for me, but his reasons are believable yeah. you know like it's not what i expected knowing what i knew extra textually about this character but sure. in the terms of the conversation i really liked that contrast between them like jess clearly has a heart of gold it's just very deeply tarnished yeah you know mm-hmm. um and and i think we'll we'll come to a place where luke does also and honestly we see he's a good guy so it's not right. like we're worried about him but yeah it's an interesting contrast yeah. in there in that mm-hmm. conversation no and i like that and we kind of get into this you know this ledger right you know um and yeah. we, i've seen this on a lot of different shows um you know one of them being you know again i, I guess this is the episode where we talk about angel as much as we talk about <laughs> jessica jones um but like it's kind of a big theme in um in the tv series angel like you know what is the ledger how much good do you have to do you know, before you can erase the bad. And the thing is, like, you can never erase the bad. uh, The answer always comes back universally. It doesn't matter how much good you do. You can never erase the bad. But doing the Mm -hmm. good isn't about erasing the bad. It's about doing the good, that those are two separate things, you know, and it's not red and black in a single ledger. It's just they're different things. You know, you did bad and now you're doing good. Mm hmm. To bring it into the MCU, we've heard this very specifically from yeah. uh, from Black Widow, from yeah. Natasha, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she's she's the source of this talking about it as a ledger. Yeah. But, uh, but I think that's also kind of the difference between them is that right now Luke is content to kind of keep to himself and do the right thing in his very small ways because right. he feels like, and he's right, mm-hmm. you still get points for doing good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. On the Jessica side, she's like, but I've got a lot of really terrible things, mm-hmm. you know, um, that I can never cancel out. That's the difference. It's, it's, I, I hate to use points, but I guess yeah. you, you talking about them as sort of being tallied entirely separate is the mm-hmm. best way to think about it. They're not really for comparing. No, it's not related, but I think that like we relate them, you know, like once you've done bad and especially because, I mean, you look at this and, and what we find out of course later, you know, is that she is talking to the man whose wife she killed. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's 
that's tough. And she really that likes she's growing Santa, so, to really yeah. like too. Yeah. Like it's, you know, she's, it was one thing when she felt guilty and she was following mm-hmm. him. And it was another thing when they were just having sex. But I think it's in that conversation mm-hmm. is when she's like, Oh shit, I really like this guy, but yeah. I wrecked his life. Yeah. Yeah. And she can't deal with that. And the thing is, is that, you know, as he's saying, you still get points for doing good. And she says, not enough to cancel the bad. He's all like, you know, cool about it. This is just a philosophical conversation for him, you know. But for her, it really means something. And, you know, when he inevitably discovers, you know, that she was the one who killed his wife, like how he's going to feel about that may change, you know. It's also... Interesting. Again, I don't want to go too far towards Luke's show, but the people who were writing this definitely knew who Luke Cage was. And he has done some some questionable shit in his Mm -hmm. life also. Mm -hmm. As as have we all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But I mean, I mean, like, seriously, to read that fact back into him saying you still get points for doing good. Like, I kind of want to try and see if we can remember this conversation until we get further into Luke Cage so that I can return to it and we can talk about whether he's deluding himself right now yeah. or or does he really believe it and his worldview just kind of changed and opened up. Well, it's also one of the things, too, that can apply to other people. Like when you look at other people, you can have a clear view of, right, you know, yes. what's good. When it's you, it's different. It's just different. You know, everybody has a double standard for themselves and for other people. And for most people, at least most of the people that I know personally, uh, the double standard is, you know, it, it, they demand more of themselves than necessarily they would ask of other people, you know? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it's one thing to look at Jessica and say, you know, here's the situation. Yes, you did a bad thing, but you were under control. You know, it, we even say that with Jessica, you know, in the next episode with the cop and we'll get to that conversation, but we see her do that with him. She's got a complete double standard there. So, um, so I think that I could say like, I definitely want to come back to this conversation when we get into Luke Cage. But I think that like, even if, he has a different philosophy when it comes to himself that's fairly psychologically consistent very human absolutely yeah i actually don't i mean we'll we'll talk more when we get to simpson but i don't know that i think jessica does have a double standard as Mm -hmm. much as she's saying the only thing she has to say knowing full well it will not matter yeah Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Because because it doesn't matter to her. It doesn't matter to her that she was under mind control. She remembers yeah. doing it. And we know from Hope mm-hmm. talking about it, Jessica remembers wanting to do it. Yes, which is the worst thing. It's not just that they're controlling you and you can't you can't fight them. It's that he makes you want to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, it's like he, he makes you, um, you know, complicit in it. And that's so much worse yes Kilgrave is super gross you guys by the way i haven't forgotten him i think next episode is when we will discuss the purple man all right but okay i, I had a love letter to write in this episode Absolutely. but yeah he's super gross he's mm-hmm. the worst no yeah. i mean but but also like a brilliantly you know constructed villain i mean my god that is like there's evil you know there's tying a girl to the railroad tracks and then there's doing this shit like that's terrible like messing with somebody's head because the thing is is that when you can draw the line between you know where you're the victim and somebody else is the perpetrator you know that's like that's hard enough that's traumatic mm-hmm. enough but to feel that you're made complicit in something that you remember wanting to do it you know um 
like that's that's full on that's so so evil because that's something that that like that evil gets inside of you I was about to say, if you'll pardon waxing poetic, Mm -hmm. most mind control, you know, poisons your mind. But then when you're done, you're like, it wasn't me. I was fighting against it. Right. Kilgrave poisoned your heart. You wanted to do it when he told you to do it. And that's just another sort of factor larger of evil. Yeah. It's rough. No, it really, really is. And that's what I I love about this villain. I mean, and also that he's played by David Tennant, who is amazing, you know, Um, but it's it's so complicated Um, and it really does, you know, all the victims are going to blame themselves, too, because they know that part of them wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's pretty crazy. But then we get to Trish, right? Who I've utter, utterly obliterated your ability to deal with Trish now, haven't I? I've just wrecked it. You're like, who is this person even? It's complicated because I do like Trish, you know, but we have this and it's it's this really wonderful scene with her and Jessica where we just and this is the way you do exposition. Like you drop hints in dialogue where they would happen naturally. We have this mm-hmm. whole thing where Jessica finally sees the bruises on Trish and Trish is just like yeah been doing Krav Maga in your old room you know and then she (laughs) says I don't want to need you to fight for me anymore no one touches me anymore unless I want them to right and that right there gives like hints at a dark past for Trish that something happened to her many somethings happened to her oh god what we come to discover is that many things have happened to her right Um, we actually find out some stuff in this season and some stuff in next season, too. Um, in fact, we talk about her mom some in this episode. So, yeah, we do get a little bit of We know some mom. of it already. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a darkness with her mom. But, I mean, I love how in that scene with these two, I mean, for the writers out there, with these two lines that obliquely nod uh-huh. to yes. what happened without giving us all of the history and the backstory and the details. And dear God, we didn't get a flashback. Thank you very much for that. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, all of that, like that was just so beautifully dropped in there and it adds this level of, of darkness to Trish um, that is really compelling and makes her a very compelling character. For one season. For one season. I'm just being honest. We'll talk about season two when we get there. For season one, for what we are discussing now, she is an incredibly compelling character. No, I agree. I was really torn over Trish because she kind of made it clear that I was never going to get the Patsy Walker that I wanted in the MCU. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, Although, hope springs eternal now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody who loves this character in this show can just not at me. I know it's kind of sad that the Netflix series are canceled. Mm-hmm. But I have a Patsy Walker pitch that now is back on the table, friends. <laughs> Disney Plus exists or will soon. So I was really yes. torn because I really did like her and I really loved her like relationship with Jessica. Yeah. Like it's mm-hmm. very complex and nuanced and complicated and they don't really get along, but they also clearly love each other. Yes. Mm-hmm. So good. It is. It's really nice. And Trish is the one thing like Jessica has shut herself off. From everybody, you know, but Trish is somebody that she's still connected to, you know, that is that still like keeps her human, 
you know, and it's just it's such a nice relationship. I absolutely love it. Um, it's really, nobody really knows their deep darks like they know each other's deep yes. darks. Yes. And I mean, that is certainly not the sort of foundation I would go search out for mm-hmm. my best friends. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a good one if that's the one you come into, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very strong. Very powerful. No, I think it's really good. Um, the other thing in this that was fantastic is Kilgrave. Kilgrave yes. is creepy as hell. And here we have this cop coming in, right? Attacking Trish, you know, leaves her for dead. Jessica, of course, you know, uh, uh, we've spent this whole time talking about how dangerous anesthesia is. And she's just like whipping, like, you know, dosing her best friend with this anesthesia, then just leaving her there. It seems a little bit crazy. I mean, you know, it works like we, you know, she convinces this guy that Trish is dead um, so that he will leave and, you know, report to Kilgrave. Then she follows him and everything. Um, But at the same time, like that seems like a really high risk strategy for that. No, it's terrible. It's it's absolutely crazy Mm -hmm. pants that this is the way she would just start yelling. Oh, my God, you killed her. It's not like he checked her pulse anyway. Right. And it's not like she can't just whisper play dead. You know, if Trish is Trish she's already is unconscious, out. right? I think just, at that point, like he I knocked think her was. out. I think he knocked Ooh. her out. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. she could just say "play dead" or whatever if she started to wake up, you know, and just say, "Oh my God, you killed her! You killed her!" And that's enough. That's all the guy needs is just to believe that he killed her and that he did what he went there to do, you know. Um, and then she, so she takes Trisha's phone, puts it in the guy's pocket, then tracks the guy all the way to Kilgrave, and um, and all of it, you know, she's looking down from the skylight and watching Kilgrave as Kilgrave is talking to this guy. You know, there's the woman who's like serving him. It is so creepy and awful and this guy you know who you know is probably a good guy you know being controlled by him about to jump off the balcony and kill himself like it's it's so crazy but the moment when she looks through the window on the balcony after saving the cop and they just look at each other it's so powerful it's so creepy i love that moment it's really great and it triggers the flashback. Yeah. To, to yeah. this I mean we've gotten bits and pieces of that like enough mm-hmm. to know what was going on but that really felt like the right moment to flesh it out more. Like mm-hmm. now now that she has seen him and this is the first time that we've really seen him. Yeah. You know, kind of face to face. It's like, right. okay, let's really, we we have all the details, but mm-hmm. the trauma really matters. Like the way Jessica felt in that moment really matters. And going back there and really like camping on it, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you and I are both on record as a uh, anti-flashback, but I, I liked that one. That one no, felt right. It actually, you know, I'm anti-flashback when it's used, you know, f- to like hold up weak writing, you know, because right. yes. most a lot of the times it is. But a flashback in and of itself can be used really well. And I think that the way that her flashbacks, you know, were showing up really, um, you know, evocative of a PTSD experience. Yes. And then, you know, when she sees him, she's been she's been flashing to this moment because this is a huge moment. This is a huge part of that PTSD. And we see the full moment that she hits this woman you know luke's wife kills her and then we know what happens after that because you know he's yelling at her and we got the back end of that scene with the Mm -hmm. bus you know before but now we're seeing what leads up to it and why jessica is so tormented um it's really really well done and of course when she sees him 
that's where her that's of course where her mind is going to go you know so it's it's very experiential for her i think it's really really well done yeah i i agree and and i think that unlike a lot of flashbacks that are all supposed to be of a moment mm-hmm. i think that one took time right yeah. because when we come back he has to nod at the fact that simpson's about to jump off the roof yeah like she was gone she was yeah. no longer where in that moment she was back in the other moment with mm-hmm. us Right. You know, and that's another thing that kind of like makes the weight of the flashback stick for me. Yes. You know, um, mm-hmm. we were all there together. It wasn't just exposition for the viewer. It was like she went back there. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. And it's so great. And then, of course, you know, she saves the guy or she knocks the guy out. She has to knock out a whole bunch of people as she's going to look for <laughs> Kilbrick. And she has this, you know, this syringe of anesthesia. That she's going to just pop him with. And I mean, like, I I just didn't quite understand exactly what her plan was because him being under anesthesia interrupts his powers. But what was she going to do while he was under? I mean, killing him, you know, would also interrupt his powers. (laughs) Like, yeah, what is what is her plan at this point? I don't think it's not. I can kind of backfill this. And Mm -hmm. I'm not one nice thing about this is that clearly Jessica is desperate, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, And it's a desperate situation, like both emotionally and sort of factually, you know, like if he gets to say a sentence to you, you're done. Yeah. The word stop is all he really needs. Mm -hmm. So I feel like what she's doing is taking the one weapon she has. Mm -hmm. Right. And if she can basically lunge at him so that even if he yells stop, she's already, you know, the momentum. She's already in motion. She couldn't stop. Right. Mm -hmm. Because then if, if he gets knocked out he will stay knocked out longer than she will be under his control. And then she can decide, you know, what to do. I don't think killing him in the moment is entirely available mm-hmm. if we're, you know, kind of vaguely realistic about it. Because again, yeah. all he has to do is say don't or stop right. or mm-hmm. hit mm-hmm. yourself. Or turn, and, the, I mean, turn the gun on yourself or like, what is right. she going to do? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So I think, I mean, one nice thing about the fact that this plan is not a great plan is that she doesn't have options that are great to yeah start with. no that's very true she's got she's grasping at straws yeah you know it's the best she has and it might work like it legitimately might work if she can't if all he has time to do is give her one simple command right but she has to get to him and pull the plunger i mean that's going to take more time more effort and give him more opportunity than even pulling a gun would that's true i, I do i do think she usually like takes the plunger off when mm-hmm. she has any time to plan you know, yeah. at all, mm-hmm. she takes the plunge drops, like taking the safety off the gun. Like yeah. she's ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, that mm-hmm. was a very not how things were supposed to go moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think it's going to haunt her, by the way, for the rest of the series, that that was a moment when if she had just let Simpson jump, she could have yeah. jumped through the friggin' skylight and taken him out, taken yep. Kilgrave out. Yeah, she could have. But because just that damn on heart of gold, she, yep. you know. Mm. I know. Being a good person, really super complicated. To return to my love of like hard-boiled and noir, the mm-hmm. I'm going to choose this one good thing that's in front of me that will cause me much larger problems as we go is some pretty noir storytelling right there. Yeah. Well, choices are everything in fiction and in life. Choices are mm-hmm. absolutely everything. And right now, I'm going to choose to move on, talk about AKA 99 Friends, season one, episode four. Jessica's on a mission to find out who Kilgrave has following her around, but it could be anyone. A woman named Audrey Eastman comes to see her and hires her to get pictures of her husband cheating. 
Meanwhile, Simpson, the cop who attacked Trish, comes back to Trish's apartment to find the body, but instead, there's Jessica and Trish. Jessica escorts Simpson out, telling him that it wasn't his fault. She tells him about Kilgrave and tells him to go home, but he wants to protect Trish. She tells him that she'll protect Trish. Jessica makes Trish give a public apology to Kilgrave, then goes home to delete all her pictures of Luke. She doesn't need a reminder of what she did to him. While tailing Audrey to see if she's in contact with Kilgrave, Jessica calls Simpson and asks him to get some police surveillance footage to help her find whoever is taking pictures of her. Jerry assembles a group of people who called her office claiming to have been under Kilgrave's control. Jessica interviews them all, weeding out the ones who are either mistaken or lying, and sets the rest up as a support group that can testify on Hope's behalf. Later, Simpson gives her the surveillance tapes and then freaks out on Malcolm in Jessica's lobby. She tells Simpson to go to the support group, but he brushes her off. So does Jessica. The next day, a little girl calls out Jessica's name on the street, tells her that Patsy Walker is safe and that Kilgrave liked her apology. The girl starts yelling at her with what are clearly Kilgrave's words. Simpson shows up at Trish's door wanting to make things right, even though Jessica told him not to, because Trish would feel safer if he weren't around, because men. Trish tells him to leave the gift he's brought her on the floor and go to the end of the hall, and apparently he can do as he's told even when it's not Kilgrave talking. Trish takes the box and opens it. There's a revolver inside. Simpson says he wants her to feel safe, and on the other side of the door, she holds the gun pointed at him. Jessica follows Audrey's husband, only to discover that the woman he's sleeping with is Audrey. Turns out she's absolutely setting Jessica up, but not because of Kilgrave. It's because she resents gifted people for the fact that her mother died in the Battle of New York, also known apparently as the incident. The incident, Whatever. I guess. Eh. Audrey shoots Jessica in the arm and Jessica loses it. She knocks Audrey down and rips the place to hell while yelling at Audrey. The response is appropriate. Trish and Simpson spend the evening talking through her closed door, so I guess that's their first date. He tells her that he's the guy who likes to save people, that he's not the guy who tried to kill her. She says she doesn't blame him and then invites him inside, keeping the gun in her hand as they talk because she's horny, not stupid. Jessica goes to the support group and when a man tells the story of how he was Kilgrave's chauffeur for a week, Jessica starts grilling him with questions. The rest of the group is confused, but Jessica gets some solid intel. Kilgrave met the same man every day at 10 in the morning and that man wore a scarf with blue and white stripes. Jessica checks the surveillance footage and sees Malcolm. She breaks into his apartment and finds pictures of herself in his printer. AKA 99 Friends was written by Hilly Hicks Jr. and directed by David Petrarca. All right, so Joshua, here we are in this episode and I'm gonna tell you it is not my favorite episode. Uh, so far, out of all the ones that we've had, um, this is the one that I think is my least favorite. I can see that. Uh, but you liked it. Did You liked it, though. Well, I did. I did like it because I do feel like it ratchets up the tension of Jessica's life. You know, yes. she doesn't mm -hmm. know what to make of Audrey, you know. And mm -hmm. I mean, Jessica's a naturally suspicious person. She has an additional layer yes. of natural suspicion right now. And Audrey's kind of weird. You know, mm -hmm. about her interactions with Jessica and yes. the fact that Jessica has to do the same job basically twice, once with Audrey and once with her husband. Like, 
I I just find this all extremely believable in fiction. And it's a mm-hmm. really good way for us to be reminded how much danger Jessica really is in, while at the same time we're kind of doing the same thing with Trish and Simpson. Yeah. Like there's a mirroring there, I feel. I I guess. I think what what annoys me about this episode is that we spend all this time with Audrey Eastman, right? And it has nothing to do with Kilgrave. It's basically like a, you know, red herring episode. So we're spending all this time with her just so that we can kind of connect it to the Battle of New York and that we've got all this stuff. To set. And like, I don't care about any of that. I, I don't think we got that kind of time here. Like, I'm interested in what's happening with Jessica and with Kilgrave and with all this stuff. In addition, we've got Jerry. Yeah. And her personal yeah. life, you know, and and this is the stuff like I honestly do not care about Jerry. I don't care about the affair she's having with her secretary. I don't care about her divorce from her wife. Like none of that stuff is interesting to me at all. And she's a character that like first of all doesn't have any vulnerability, right? She's really tough and she's really hard and she's playing by every like 1960s, you know, uh male businessman cliche right right? but because she's a woman somehow that's supposed to make it interesting look she's a lesbian so it's cool no it's still stupid cliche bullshit just because you gender bent it doesn't make it any better and on top of that she has no vulnerability she is completely just bitchy and nasty to everyone and i mean i don't mind like it's not like we have to have you know, because she's a woman, that she has to have this sensitive, like, heart or whatever. It's because she's a character. Like, if you want us to, like, hear a man, if this was a man, I would be no more interested in it than I am, you know, with it being a woman. Um, but the fact that I feel like we're supposed to be interested because she's a lesbian, so instead of writing her as an actual, like, fully realized character... Um, you know, we're just writing this this assemblage of cliche bullshit that I've watched Mad Men. I've seen all hmm. of this. I'm not interested. I have a few Jerry feelings here um, that are a little bit in contrast to yours, I think. Um, mm-hmm. I do feel like there is an interesting take to be had on the woman who becomes a toxic masculine cliche because she thinks that w- that's what she has to do in her business. Mm-hmm. And and I do think that's something of a commentary um, on that attitude. Like, clearly, Jerry's life is not going super great. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's a little bit of a circle back around to maybe don't live your life that way. I also will say right. that we do get one beginning glimpse into Jerry's interiority, and it's not good. Like, it, she's not a good yeah. person. When she's sitting there like, oh, I mean, just think of all the good we could do if we could literally make everybody do the thing we want them to do. <laughs> That's actually the most interesting moment for me. Yeah, totally. That's the moment I like the most. That's the most interesting moment for me with her when you get like the way that her mind works. And the thing is, like, I don't mind that she's tough. I don't mind that she's a bitch. I don't mind that she um, is not, you know, particularly sensitive to other people and doesn't give a fuck. Um, What bothers me is that we don't like in order for us to connect with a character we need to see some sort of vulnerability there you know some sort of something so if i'm going to be spending this time with her ex-wife and her girlfriend and all of this stuff and she has this horrible moment you know where she she meets with the wife and the wife is all vulnerable the wife is like this is where you proposed to me you know she's trying to warn the secretary um and then jerry's like she doesn't get this restaurant and then the secretary's like yeah she does and the thing is like why the secretary 
doesn't just like leave and that's it. And like, we're broken up and this is, I'm not going out with you because I'm looking at my future and this poor woman who is crying right. in this restaurant, you know, um, like all of that stuff. Um, and, and I have the same feeling about Jerry that I have about like when I see this cliche with a male character, which is why, you know, why are these women? Inter- I mean, in the 60s, you know, <laughs> fine, because women gained access to money and power through men, but they don't need her anymore. Like, you know, they don't need him. They don't need her. Um, so all of it, I find really irritating and uh, you know and if you're gonna do something that's been done like that a million times simply gender flipping the perpetrator of it does not make it interesting um but when she's talking to um to jessica and she's like wow with that kind of power the things we could like that was really kind of interesting Mm -hmm. that was an interesting moment with her um but if we're going to see her personal life like and, and also at this point you know, it has nothing to do with anything at this point, right? So here we are in this episode, this episode standing on its own as a narrative. This has nothing to do with anything. Nobody cares. Like, why are we watching her personal life? I don't care. She's in the middle of a messy divorce. Fine. I don't need to see this. I don't care. The bad news is that later yes. on in this first season, there are going to be a couple of episodes that will make you long for the craft of 99 Friends. And a big reason that they are not good is because we finally get around to Jerry's real vulnerability and some really stupid stuff happens. Um, So the seeds of that poison tree are planted today, you know? Right, right. I mean, we're building this this story. We're making Jerry a thing. And I don't think that she needs to be a thing. You know, I'm more interested. Like, I'm enjoying Trish and Simpson. Right. I actually kind of like this very, very weird first date. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, not wildly dissimilar to the very weird first date that Jessica and Luke had in the previous right. episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very... No, no, no I'm here really, for Trish and Simpson, really especially nice. with mm-hmm. where we wind up with Simpson. Put that in your back pocket for a while. Right. But I mean, I love this whole thing with Simpson. Like Simpson was mind controlled, right? And tried to kill a woman. You know, and as he's sitting there telling her this story, you know, and it's kind of a cute story, like how he ended up burning down all of the G.I. Joe's trying to save the Barbie, you know, and he's like, I'm the person who saves people. I am not the person who tries to kill people, you know, and Trish knows Trish understands. I mean, she's not, you know, going to put her guard down or Mm -hmm. anything. She's holding the gun every moment that they're talking, which I think is really good. I like that, too. Um, But it reminds me, actually, and again, I don't know, I've got it in my notes talking about Angel, Um, that there was this episode of Angel in which there was a, a demonic man who, when he touched men would make them behave terribly you know like kill women it's just like complete misogyny and so we had a character in that episode named wesley who's a pretty good guy like you know for the most part pretty good guy and um ended up trying to kill the woman that he loved although she didn't know that he loved her so it kind of put a damper on that relationship um (laughs) at that point um but uh but i mean he loved her and he tried to kill her he you know terrorized her and chased after her and hit her and like all these things and there's this moment at the end of that episode where he says like i or uh, there's kind of this sense of i don't know what kind of man i am i don't know who i am right because when somebody gets in your head like that um, and makes you complicit in doing something that you would never do. Like, what kind of man, 
what kind of person am I, you know? And I love when we do fiction that makes people ask that question. And here we have Simpson, you know, who is clearly upset over this. I mean, upset to the point where the woman that he attacked, he's going back, even though he's been told to stay away, he should have stayed away. Like, that's not okay. Going into her space in that instance is you know, is just like making things worse because he wants to feel better. It's incredibly selfish, you know, for him to do that. Um, He could have given that gun to Jessica to give to Trish to make her feel better, you know, to make her feel safer or whatever. But so that I don't like. But the rest of it, like, I really like his his question. I think it was done better in that episode of Angel. It was more affecting in that episode of Angel. But of course, Wesley was a character that we had been growing with and living with and, and, you know, working with for that whole time. We had already grown to love him, whereas Simpson is new. But I do like seeing him wrestle with that question. Like, what kind of this is the kind of person I am. This is my identity. I am the guy that saves people. You know, and then he has to deal with the fact that he attacked and almost killed this woman and intended to kill this woman and wanted to kill this woman and this woman who he's spending the night talking to because they just connect. We don't usually jump around very much and do spoilery business. We kind of try and take them as they come. But it is really hard for me to talk about these scenes of Simpson without taking into account where he winds up, because I agree with you that. In this episode. In this episode. He is selfish, but in an understandable way. Like, um, and and that it does come down to protecting and, Mm -hmm. but he's also like, he really is, as the show goes on, the air quotes, good guy who doesn't understand that he's not really that good a guy. That the way he decides to be a good guy actually makes him kind of a bad guy. It does. And I mean, without stepping, I mean, looking at this episode just in itself, like those are my responses. No, I get about Like the whole arc for Simpson that gets a little more complicated. And also there's like the, you know, the quote unquote good guy, you know, that the writers believe is a Mm -hmm. good guy, but yet they may like in this episode, right? The fact that Jessica said, leave her alone, you're going to make her feel unsafe, right? And then because he wants to feel better, he goes to her house with a box with a gun in it. You know, like, I mean, that's like, what are you doing? You know, you need to leave this woman alone. You have traumatized this woman. You tried to kill this woman. Do not go back to her house, uh, the place where you first busted in on her and tried to kill her. Like, that's just. That shows absolutely no consideration and no care for her and what she's going through. That's all about him, you know, and that pisses me off. But that's also something that like, do the writers realize that they're doing that? Or do they think that this makes him a good guy because he's bringing her a gun to make her feel safe? Because of where Simpson ends up, I think they know exactly Mm -hmm. what they're doing. Because I think Maybe. more of what we find out about Simpson kind of circles back and makes that G.I. Joe and Barbie's Dreamhouse thing way more sinister and a awful. little darker. That's not a cute little story. Yeah. That is how Simpson, yeah. air quotes, protects people is by, uh, you know, by committing to the Burning scenario. Burning it down. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I think right. they know exactly yeah. what they're doing with Simpson, largely because of where he winds up. I, I think so. But in this episode, though, I don't think it's clear. Like, I'm not sure about what the writers intend in this episode. That it, or do, or is it supposed to be cute? Are we supposed to think that this is okay? The fact that she warms up to him and ends up spending the evening talking with him, even after he, 
you know, he basically put his needs above mm-hmm. hers after almost killing her. Like, if you're really concerned about her, you leave her alone. You don't go near her. You don't walk in her neighborhood. Like, you stay away. Um, but he didn't because he needed to make himself feel better. And it was really all about him. So, you know, looking at that, aside from that, I kind of like the way, you know, this little, this like romantic date goes. I kind of like, I love when she's got the gun and she's pointing it at the door. The door, which, by the way, he couldn't ram through. So if she shoots the gun at that, it's going to end up flying in her face and she's going to have to go to the hospital. <laughs> I think but that the, was a you know. psychological moment. I think. She I was think stealing so too. herself. I like the for psychological. In, you know. Right. I like the psychological bit of it. Um, and I like the fact that when they're talking, you know, she's still got her hand on the gun the whole time. Yeah, Trish so knows what's up. That. Yeah. Trish does know what's up. But speaking of doors, <laughs> you've had some you've had some thoughts about Jessica's door. And I really want to hear, you know, we have the guys, the Portuguese guys who come in and they're going to like fix her door for her. And we finally get the glass put back up. But I kind of want to hear what you have to say about Jessica's door. And now a word from our sponsor. Adams Door Repair and Locksmith offers the finest lock and door repair in all of Hell's Kitchen. We ought to what with all the practice we get. In fact, I don't even know why we're doing this friggin' advertising. Ever since we started following that private detective around, you know Jessica Jones, we've been almost too busy. We just leave a card behind everywhere she goes and what do you know, we get a call. We got the idea after she busted up one of our guys when he was trying to fix her door. So anyway, we're Adam's Door Repair and Locksmith and you should call us if you got a broken door. Or if Jessica Jones is on her way to see you, because trust us, you're gonna have one after she leaves. So remember, after Jessica Jones takes a walk, always call Adam's door and lock. Huh? Or you can just forget about even trying to keep a door in good shape in Hell's Kitchen. What with devil-teamed vigilantes kicking them in and super strong PIs snapping locks. Instead, you can use that repair money to become a patron of Chipperish Media. You know Chipperish, the source of some of the best deep dive discussions available on genre fiction and television and movies. You got you still pretty about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, hosted by Lonnie Diane Rich and feminist film scholar Noelle LaCroix. Still dead about Angel the Series, hosted by Lonnie and Southern Fried Scholar Dr. Kelly Jones. You got Welcome to the End Times, a look at the book Good Omens, and the Amazon adaptation thereof, also hosted by Lonnie and Kelly. You can also, you know, hyperspace off to metaphors bewitch you by Rob Heyrich. He brings you all the best literary criticism from a galaxy far, far away. But that's just the free stuff. For as little as a dollar a month, and as much as you, you know, want to throw at them, you get access to patron-exclusive content like Duhost Minimum. That's where chipperish hosts mix and match to talk about stories chosen by you patrons. You also get access to the exclusive chipperish Discord chat. That's where all the patrons discuss details that go, you know, a little above and beyond what can reasonably be contained by a podcast. You know what I'm saying? To keep all this quality content coming at you free and ad-free, just visit www.patreon.com chipperish. And don't slam the door on all the podcasts you love. If you do, you know Jessica will just break them down anyway. Okay, I mentioned in the last episode that for me, Jessica's own door is like a metaphor for her entire life and some of the stages that she goes through in Mm -hmm. the show. And I definitely think 
that it continues here because we yes. get some repairmen who are, mm-hmm. it's worth pointing out, men. You yes. Know, who are talking over her. Like mm-hmm. in this way, in a language, in Portuguese, in a language that she yeah. doesn't know. But, uh-huh. you know, regardless, you know, man speak. We're mansplaining mm-hmm. things. This is a very broken door, right. you know. <laughs> and And then they also, with the price, clearly take advantage yeah. of her. So, metaphor for mm-hmm. her life. Jessica is capable of getting her door fixed, but she is incapable of paying mm-hmm. the bill. In the end, she rebreaks the lock so that everything looks fine while still being basically just as broken as it was before the repair. <laughs> so every single yeah. day, and we've watched this on this show, like I'm not pulling stuff from yeah. nowhere. Like this isn't even informed or backstory. Like we've watched her get out of bed every day and do the damn work of mm-hmm. the day. But she is always borrowing like tomorrow's strength or tomorrow's sleep or tomorrow's trouble to yeah. get it done. Mm-hmm. And that bill is going to come due eventually. And in the meantime, Jessica looks reasonably functional. Right. But is still always just as broken just like her oh door. my god i love it i love this whole door metaphor oh it's gonna keep I coming it. it never stops <laughs> <laughs> and and for what it's worth i think the fact that now they borrowed this from the comic book but i think the fact that the show literally introduces us to the world uh-huh. through jessica's yeah. door and then boy again we'll get to it at the end and the way that we leave the world through jessica's door i'm i don't I don't think I'm being crazy. I think I am on to something. No, I definitely think you are. I love it. I didn't see it, but I love that you brought this whole metaphor in there. I think it's absolutely dead on and just perfect. So I'm I'm very excited to have like, you know, Joshua's door moment for every <laughs> for every episode of Listen Up A Holes where we talk about um, Jessica Jones. I have great news for you. There's actually um two door yes. moments in every okay. episode. Because there's also Jessica's ongoing war on doors. <laughs> because you may recall our running tab from last sure, batch right. of episodes was three. Yeah. Yes. Well, if we're counting the padlock. So I didn't count the lockers uh-huh. last last one because those were like, they're locker doors, right? right? Like, I'm trying to be specific because I do think this show has a thing about doors generally. Yeah. And so I didn't count the lockers, but I do count the padlock that she twists off oh, of sure, Audrey's door right. mm-hmm. because it was to go through an actual yeah. door, mm-hmm. right? And then, of course, she breaks her own again. Right. So we are up to a running total of five in Jessica's war on Yeah, doors. well, and she destroys everything when she tears apart Audrey's little house there. <laughs> Yes. Uh, when I say this, this is specific. Now, I do count the man that she throws through her yes. own door, which is a little bit breaking the rest of my rules. Because, again, that's the introduction. Like, that's right. the that's the sort of neon sign that says pay attention yes. to doors. Mm-hmm. You know. But, but I mean, she breaks a lot of locks, you she guys. Does. Like, a lot of locks. She really does. So, I love it. Up to five. I love it. Five and four episodes. All right. I want, I want Joshua's door moment as a segment for all the Jessica Jones episodes this season. I expect you should expect that to continue because the metaphor goes on and she never stops breaking doors. That's very cool. I like it a lot. All right. So, Joshua, what's your favorite part in these two episodes? I really like Jessica tricking Simpson twice. Mm -hmm. Like, she knows how Kilgrave's mind control works from the inside out, Mm -hmm. you know. And she knows that she's going to have to kill this man to stop him from killing Trish unless he can get her to believe that he killed Mm -hmm. Trish. Now, 
clearly she went a little around the bend as far as that convincing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with the actual knocking Trish out with Safentin. Yeah. But I also like that we come back to this, that um, that she carries Simpson downstairs uh-huh. and then throws themselves into the trash, like, together yeah. so she could be like, you jumped and I saved you. <laughs> Because then yeah, he would believe yeah. her. Like he he didn't say jump to your death. He just said right. jump. So, and 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 this also kind of gives us um, some handles for Kilgrave's mm-hmm. power. It is very much about the letter of yes. the law. Yes. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily fighting it, but you're also not doing creative thinking. If he tells you to jump off the yeah. ledge, he wants you to die in right. the process. Mm-hmm. But that's not what you're worried about. Mm-hmm. You're just gonna jump. Right. Mm-hmm. You know. So. Yeah, that's it just it just showed more of um like Jessica's thinking on her feet and also understanding Kilgrave in a way that no one else really can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and and so I just yeah, I really I really liked that a lot. No, I thought that was really great too. I my favorite part is just that moment when they make eye contact through the glass door. You know, she lands on the balcony, she's going to save that guy and she and Kilgrave just look at each other and then boom into that flashback. It's so good. This is probably the tightest put together of the of the Netflix series that I've yeah. seen. There's a few that I haven't watched all mm-hmm. the way through yet. And and there's definitely some stuff later, but just there are no wasted moments. Yeah. I I mean, I even feel like Audrey's not a waste because it's doing something to our tension, mm-hmm. you know. But nothing beats the bookends of spotting him on the roof to you know, the nod and acknowledgement of one another. Goodness. Yeah. Gross. That's good stuff. (laughs) If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich and I am at Joshua Unruh. And the hashtag is listen up, a-holes. Both Chipperish Media and Pulp Diction Productions are entirely supported by listeners like you who know when to say sweet Christmas. Show your support by visiting our Patreon pages or by leaving a great review on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for more people to find us and join in the conversation. The links to Apple Podcasts and both of our Patreon pages are easy to find right there in the show notes. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Jessica Jones Season 1, Episodes 3 and 4. Until then, we won't waste our time circle jerking with a bunch of whiners. <laughs>